Welcome back, everyone, to Wells Preachers Podcast. We're talking about Good Friday for Year C. Our theme for this series is a Holy Week, so it's that short one-week worship series. We're talking about how just like on a holiday, you kind of slow down on that holy day to commemorate something special, so also in this Holy Week. We're slowing down for the entire week to ponder the events of this most important week in human history. Our theme for this particular day, Good Friday, His Punishment, Our Peace. Our participants today are Pastor Jonathan Bauer of Good News Lutheran in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin, Pastor Joel Russo of Faith Lutheran in Tallahassee, Florida, and Professor Kenneth Cherney of Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. I'm John Hyde, coordinator of Wells Congregational Services. John Bauer, I'm going to start with you, and we always start this podcast the same way, and maybe it's silly this week. Is it ridiculous for me to ask, what are you hoping is going to be on your people's hearts and minds when they leave worship this Good Friday? I think uh, possibly what makes preaching on this day seem like a, a bit of a challenge is also the, the big opportunity, which is to take something that is, in many cases, so familiar to people, something that they've they've heard for so long and you know in a lot of ways if you if you ask them to distill their entire faith and what they believe into one sentence it it might just be jesus died for my sins on the cross um so to to take that that thing that is just so a part of us um and first of all as preachers i think realize that that maybe the significance of that statement shouldn't be viewed as 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 obvious as we might assume it is, um, but then also to help people realize just truly what a uh, what a profound and, and ultimately surprising thing it is that uh, the, the underlying reality of, of what's going on in the events that we commemorate on this day. And, and I think just to, to maybe help preachers think about that a little bit, it's interesting to me or a thought that occurred to me, out of all the events that the Bible records in Jesus' life, or out of all the events that people might either accept or reject, um, involved this guy named Jesus from Nazareth. I think what happens today is one that probably has the most widespread acceptance in terms of like, this is a thing that actually happened. There was this guy named Jesus, and he was put to death on a Roman cross. So whether you're a conservative Christian, or what we might call a more liberal Christian, or whether you're part of the spiritual but not religious crowd, or whether you're a full-blown agnostic or atheist, there's just such widespread acceptance that a guy named Jesus died on a Roman cross, which means that all of those other groups of people need to have some sort of significance or need to assign some sort of meaning to this event. And obviously the meaning that they're going to assign is going to be very different from the meaning that we want people to walk out the door with. And so uh, we get the events described in in John, but then you know whether someone's preaching on Galatians three or in this case we're talking about Isaiah fifty two, it just so beautifully lays out what what exactly is the point of all of this, what exactly is going on. And I think there's a great a great opportunity and great joy in being able to do that today. Yeah, Joe, let me pivot to you. John just talked about how you have Galatians three, the second reading, where Paul explains the result of Christ being on a pole that we're saved from the curse of the law. The gospel, John 19, gives us the historical details of Jesus being hung on the tree, but we're going to be preaching on the Old Testament reading, Isaiah 52 and 53. 
uh, which seems to do both, describe the event and share the ramifications of that event. So what are your initial thoughts about how that text drives home the theme of the day, his punishment, our peace? Like how John was already asking the good Lutheran question of, you know, what does this mean? And and we get to be that, you know, Philip to the Ethiopian who's reading through the text with people on, you know, Good Friday and, and talking through who is this and, and now what does this mean? Um, I actually, my mind went to Job very quickly and I got to explain why. But, you know, when you have someone who's suffering and the suffering of the servant is clearly laid out in the text, the question you start to ask is, well, why is this person suffering? Is God getting them? You know, is God uh, meeting out justice? And the answer is yes, but not for the reason you'd think. He's suffering, and, and yet those pronouns always just jump out at me from the text itself. Of He's suffering, but not for his own iniquities. He's suffering for our iniquities. And the result is that we get his peace. And I think just just that that powerful thing of how, yes, he is suffering, but not for himself. He's suffering on our behalf. And uh, I, I almost think you need a three-hour service to actually preach this text. <laughs> but maybe you don't. I, I mean, just the point, there's a lot in here. And, and how to not overcomplicate it that you miss those, as John was saying, those clear, beautiful truths. Um, something I'm curious to talk about, I'll just throw this out there now, is just that that just even that word shalom and peace and what do we mean by that and how do we preach that uh, well uh, from this text? So throwing that out there. Well, it's a great, it's a great yeah. transition to Professor Cherney. Um, Professor, our listeners have already translated the text. So you want to share some initial thoughts about how to get us rolling? Uh, sure. I, uh, some of my thoughts have been said well already. When you when you mentioned that our listeners have translated the text, I mean I take that to mean that not only they have turned it into English, but that they have come to some kind of a position on the exegetical, including text critical questions in this text, and they are there's a multitude of them. You know, uh, this is not an easy text at all, as guys who have had this. Uh, who have read this together with me in class uh, can attest. In fact, the usual reaction is, uh, you know, I was a lot happier before I read this in Hebrew because then I knew what it all meant. But uh, Joel's advice is very well taken. You you can't allow yourself to miss the the forest for the trees, of course. Who this text is about and what it says about him could not be clearer, and that's the main point. And as was said earlier, um, verse 5, is the strongest, most emphatic statement of the vicarious nature of Jesus' atonement, not just in the Old Testament, but in the whole Bible. It does not get any more emphatic than this with repetition of those pronouns, he, us, um, he, us, us, him, he, us. uh, So give it to him. I mean, if there's one thing you want them walking out of church, uh, uh, having this just echo in their in their brains, I think that would be it. John Bauer, let me go back to you. So we just talked about this being a lengthy, richly packed text. So some initial thoughts about how you're going to handle it or points you want to drive home? Yeah, you know, I think a, a question that that realistically the preacher probably needs to, to grapple with right off the bat, you know, hopefully he's at least looked at the text in its entirety um, but do you do you preach it in its entirety? 
or do you, do you focus on, you know, probably just the very center and heart of it in verses four through six? And, and I've, I'll confess that I've, I've done it both ways, but I think, I think it's good to at least be aware of the fact, you know, this isn't like other, uh, other, other pericopes where the decision of where to start and where to stop is, I mean, it's well thought out, but ultimately it could be disputed or changed. The reason we're looking at this text, the way it is, where we're starting and where we're stopping is not just because some uh, lectionary crafter decided to do that, but because it, it is inspired as a unit, as a single uh, song, you know, that, that goes through these these five different parts. So I think it's it's wise for the preacher to at least be aware of that and to understand, even if they do kind of spend most of their time on, on four through six, how it, how it fits together with uh, the rest of that. And I, I think one of the blessings or one of the benefits of that um, that I've found to be helpful on, on Good Friday, just in, in terms of helping people understand why, why are we doing this? Why are we gathering together on this day to celebrate somebody's death? Um, what we're not doing, and I, you know, I kind of mentioned this when we did Palm Sunday, I think, we're, we're not like pretending as though we're going through it again. And, you know, how's this all going to turn out? Oh, how sad that Jesus died on the cross. And boy, I, I really hope things turn around in a couple of days. We, the, the whole reason that we're celebrating Jesus' death and remembering it, even as, as solemn as that celebration is, is because we know the full story and we know how it fits. And the verses that come both before four through six and after four through six really provide that for us, you know, for the, this song that is so equated with the suffering of the servant to start out with really a theme verse of 52 verse 13, uh, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. You're not really expecting the song to start out that way. And of course it comes full circle at the end as the, the resurrection is talked about. So to, to make sure we're preaching about Jesus death in the context of um we know the ultimate outcome of, of this. We know the, the full story, um, I think, is helpful, even if most of the time is spent on just four through six. Excellent. Other thoughts? It's, um, I mean, there's a ton in this text, of course, but if, I mean, if we want to jump to different phrases or talk about different parts, um, obviously four through six, I, I agree with John, the times I preached on this before, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I cut the text down and really narrowed in on, on that. Um, so the next time I preach on it, I won't, um, I'll, I'll do my due diligence, but that, that phrase, we esteemed him not. And, you know, I just, I'm always kind of reminded about how we, we go through this every two to four years in our country where you can see how um, people esteem other individuals or other things that we, we pin our hopes in, you know, something, whether it's political or career or whatever it is, the things we esteem. And yet you see um, the one who God esteems and the bookends that John talked about, you know, the, the ex exaltation is talked about. And what is what is it about him that we esteem? He did this for us. And you you have some neat little gospel laces, too, to connect to um, Galatians 3, too, is that uh, I think it's in verse 11 there um, that that we would be made righteous um, to make many righteous. And that that thought really does come up in the Galatians reading as well, that that we do have peace with God, that that there is that right relationship because he took the punishment for us. 
Other thoughts? And kind of a thought slash, slash question that maybe uh, Professor Cherney can weigh in on, but that, that part of the, the song that Joel mentioned, um, specifically right at the end of, of verse three, I'm, I'm trying to remember where what, what commentary I was reading, but the view that, that, that those verses, one through three, are really speaking from a Jewish perspective, that when Isaiah says, who has believed our message, or, or we held him in low esteem, he's talking specifically about the Jewish people, um, and how, you know, what a, what a shocker it would have been that this long-awaited national hero, Messiah, Savior, Rescuer, you know, whatever title you want to use, that, that this would be his destiny to be lifted up above the earth and put on this, this piece of wood that was associated with not only a, a curse in their own culture, as, as uh, the Galatians reading points out, but then in terms of, you know, the greater secular world around them, the, the Roman instrument of intimidation and, and torture, um, that this very personal, you know, feeling of, of a complete, you know, our, our pride and joy as a nation is, is this savior. Um, and if that's the case, I think there's just all kinds of opportunity for us to look at ourselves as Christians and say, you know, whatever amount of esteem, whatever amount of, of uh, influence and honor we would, ex- you know, think that we might be entitled to in our world, what embodies our faith, our faith most is this thing that according to the standards of the world is just is so utterly worthless and held in low esteem. Yeah, I think you could certainly see in 53 verses 1 to 3 in the shift to an our to our and we messages. Uh, I would prefer to say this is now being recounted from the point of view of a contemporary who's watching this whole thing unfold and has to admit we didn't know what was going on. Uh, it's an element of surprise that, of course, from us for, for us from our perspective now is a little hard to recapture, but. Um, Another element of surprise that is a little hard to recapture is it is not a slam dunk at all for uh, the contemporaries who are watching this going on, that this is the Messiah. He's never referred to as the Messiah in this text. Uh, For that matter, uh, Isaiah never calls him the the servant, the Messiah. He uses the word for Mashach once to refer to the servant. Well, it's the servant who speaks. But uh, the only time Isaiah uses the word Messiah, he's talking about Cyrus of Persia. So when the Ethiopian eunuch asks, who is this talking about? Is it the prophet himself or is it somebody else? That is an absolutely legitimate question. Uh, Not for us, (laughs) but it would have been at the time. And then, uh, as I said, I I think the the contemporary who's watching this, his perspective that, you know, we saw a, a bleeding, dying man just getting pummeled and concluded that the Lord must not want him anymore. Uh, boy, were we wrong, that, uh, that that's a perspective that is worth, really worth trying to recapture, if for no other reason than, as, as you kind of intimated, John, uh, don't trust your eyes. Um, what a great opportunity to preach the theology of the cross, and that the, the things that the world minimizes and thinks are of absolutely no account, that's how God does his work. If I could segue to what I think is kind of a related thought, uh, we start out before that up in 52:10 with the arm of the Lord. 
which has been a little bit of a leitmotif in the context leading up to this. You know, we, we started out in 51, wake up, wake up, arm of the Lord. Where are you, arm of the Lord? And then God's arm swings into action here, but nobody even realizes that that's what it is, that that's what's happening. Other thoughts? I got a good one. You, um, go, go ahead, John. No, go ahead, Joe. I was just going to say, just um, maybe, Professor, you could give us a, a quick little riff on shalom. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't, I know we don't want to take one word from the text and make that the text itself, but just that—that that is a word um, that comes up. That I mean, it's in our theme: His punishment, our peace. I want to really emphasize and, and preach. What, what do we mean by the peace we have? Yeah, that, that's a legitimate question. I think shalom. It, it's as it's often explained, is a, it's a positive rather than a negative concept. It's not the absence of war and fighting. It's, you know, um, you, you've got a chicken in the oven. You've got a car in your garage. You've got a lawnmower that starts on the first pull. Everything is just headed your direction. Your life is all that you could hope that it could be. I mean, that's, that's shalom. It's, it's wholeness or or, or health, or yeah, health would not be a good translation, but but you get the point. So it's musar, uh, discipline, that brings about completeness, uh, that that satisfies, and that that could be a good segue to talking about just precisely what it's uh, what it's satisfied. I suppose I don't know, Joel. Is this making sense, or is it? It is. Yep. Answering your question, I guess. Yeah, just, I mean, just of that concept, sometimes just as we're preaching, you know, we use words, but it's good to just dwell on what are we talking about here? What What is the peace we have? You know, if his punishment brought us peace, what are we talking about? And and making it tangible for the hearer. I've often, I've often thought too, just of how, I mean, just the the wholeness or the peace you have knowing something is done or paid, <laughs> um, you know, your last uh, student loan or, or uh, I got a speeding ticket one time that I really wanted to dispute and I fought it for a while and, and finally it was paid and just there was a weight off your shoulders. And of course, that's very minor comparison to the weight that uh, or the debt that was paid by our savior. Well, is the pay off of debt. So I'm not sure that that's, I mean, it would be legitimate to invoke that here as a gospel hook, I suppose. I don't think that's what shalom means here, but but I'm just, I guess, vindicating your point, sort of, or maybe reinforcing your point a little. <laughs> Do you guys have any thoughts? I, I think um, it's, it's obviously it's pretty easy to see specific gospel in this text, but when it comes to like a malady, I have heard this text used a zillion different ways from thinking that's that sin there's such a thing as sin without repercussions um and it's just where do the repercussions fall um a zillion different ways you guys have any thoughts what's the what's the warning against sin or the malady that's in this text i think um a lot of it's implicit rather than explicit. I mean, mm -hmm. you, the, the text is replete with words for sin. Uh, mm -hmm. But one uh, I, I haven't heard exploited a lot, I guess, is in verse 7, uh, when we are like uh, 
I'm sorry, verse six, when we're all wandering around like, like sheep, you know, you can't, first of all, I don't know if you can read this text and not hear Handel's Messiah echoing in your ears. And uh, the we all like sheep, you know, that that's such a giddy, happy, bouncy little tune. You think, well, that's nice. Now, I'm no musical expert, but I think what Handel is trying to say is not, this is really nice. The sheep, sheep are having a grand old time. I think what he's trying to say, and John knows a lot more about this than I do. Maybe he can correct me. I think what Handel's trying to say is these sheep are acting silly. They're, they're being just ridiculous. They're, the sheep, their only shot at safety is staying together. And what's happening, they're all breaking up into little individual small groups, and they're going off their own way. Uh, then if you look at... Uh, at the rest of six, the sheep, the flock is dispersing. Each sheep is getting it into its head that it knows better than everybody else and is going off in its own direction. But then, so there's movement in two directions. There's a dispersing going on in the first bicolon. And then in the second bicolon, the Lord is bringing something together. Namely, our sins. And I, I can't remember if it's Edward Young or who is the with whom this thought is original, that this is like the Lord taking the, the world's iniquity, like a thousand stinking sewers and causing them to all come together and dump their filth in one place. And that's on him. That's great thoughts. The Each of us has turned to his own way being, yeah, just, just a, a summary of, of mankind's sinful heart. I think one other, maybe one other opportunity for some, some malady. I mean, there, as Professor mentioned, there's all kinds of words for sin, and and we can get very specific as as those words are used. Um, I, you know, as I think about those middle verses, and, and Professor used the the phrase that we often use, uh, and and we teach vicarious atonement, and how beautifully it comes out in those verses. Um, it seems to me, at least in the the little poking around that I've done, um, kind of out in the wider world, you see a phrase uh, called penal substitution. And so this idea that in order to forgive a world of sinners, that that God's son had to be punished uh, in their place. And among sort of the skeptical crowd and the new atheists, um, there's, there's a lot of pushback or criticism of that. Like, if God really is so great, why did, you know, why did it, why couldn't he just forgive people if he really wanted to? And, and why does he have to take, like, it's this barbaric thing of this very primitive religious thought that God would have to, you know, punish his son for the sins of the world. And, you know, maybe it's worthwhile to just introduce people to that idea that, it, that it's out there, you know, as people try and make sense of, of Jesus' death on the cross. But then to bring it home and say, you know, even even though probably all the people sitting in the room don't don't you know object to this idea of vicarious atonement, it is very easy to think, well, my sins aren't that bad. Um, that it wouldn't require a holy God to really do this to His one and only Holy Son. It is very easy for us to think, I know I'm a sinner, but my sins, you know, really aren't that bad at the end of the day. And verses four through six just really take that head on and say, no, they really are that bad. Because look at what look at what this servant had to go through. Yes, for your sins too. Um, and so maybe just a, an overarching uh, tendency that we have, especially in a world where sin is is treated lightly, um, and maybe even you know a good opportunity. Certainly, if you know if this text is getting used, the hymn "Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted" is is just a wonderful hymn to use because obviously it uses 
those words in the title, but then the, uh, the verse that says, if you think of sin but lightly, nor suppose it's evil great, here you see its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. We just, we, we are so prone to minimize our own personal sin. And this text exposes that for sure. Can we maybe just pull on that thread a little bit? Because I think that's a great point to make on this day, because that every new atheist writes about that, just what you just brought up, that the whole notion of this vicarious atonement just, it just falls apart as being illogical. Why would this have to happen? I, I won't answer that question, but my favorite quote out of all, you know, that falls into that category is where Richard Dawkins says, just who is God trying to impress with all of this? It's just so snide and, and snarky. And it just, I think it, it perfectly captures that attitude of, um, yeah, who does this God think he is? Like this idea of the God of the Old Testament being this this barbaric uh, kind of guy. Well, uh, to that point, John, it, hey, John, I, this, I think it's an excellent idea to acquaint people with the fact that this is out there and that people find this you know, part of the offense of the cross. They find this just absurd, but... This is maybe for me a, a warning against uh, ex- preaching this the way we sometimes do, as if the cross kind of got God out of a jam, you know? Uh, oh my gosh, I, I have to remain holy, uh, but I love people and I don't have to save them somehow. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll sacrifice my son and, th- and that'll, you know, that'll get, well, th- the Holy One of Israel experiences no jams. This is not a problem for God. Uh, could God have simply forgiven the world its sins by fiat? Well, sure, he's God. He can do absolutely anything he wants. Um, he chose not to, so as to become both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. But isn't the larger point, I mean, it, are we kind of missing the elephant in the room here, which is the profound depths of God's love for you that this demonstrates? And are you really going to cavil at God's demonstration of his love that moved him to do this and say, well, that's not the way I would have done it. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, Maybe we, uh, maybe it's not an objection that can be rationally overcome, but can only be overcome by the, by drowning it in a flood of the love of the gospel. (laughs) And along those same lines, you know, the same book, of course, and not, not that far down the road, uh, you know, suggests as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are, are your ways and your thoughts higher than ours. And so we're not going to um, ultimately be able to grasp a lot of things about God in a way that, that we can understand, first and foremost, is the, the gospel itself. But I, I like Professor's point of, um, you know, stressing this, this wasn't like plan B. Like plan A is that everything goes well in the garden. And then, oh, no. <laughs> Things went, you know, so what am I going to do now? But but stressing that this was the plan all along, that from the moment God said, let there be light, he knew this was going to cost him his son. And just to just to bring out and, and maybe it's a little bit of a shameless plug uh, for another resource connected with this with this hymnal, the devotional book that Mark Paustian put together. He's got a devotion in there. I don't even know what what day or or what topic it's associated with, but he talks about um, the thought that he introduces, and I I don't know if it's one that he came up with on his own, but that as God is creating everything in the beginning um, and giving you know everything its its various properties and and including plants, and as God creates trees and puts in those trees the property that properties that we know wood has, that as God's creating. Uh, 
the, the properties of a tree, he knows that it's strong enough to support the weight of a human body. Um, and, and you connect that a little bit with the, the uh, Galatians 3, you know, cursed is everyone who's suspended from a, a tree. Like all of this is, is baked into the cake from eternity, that this is how it's, it's going to be. Um, and just as, as Professor mentioned, just the flood of God's love that really washes away all objections. Joel. Yeah, you know, you're really bringing out the thoughts, too, of that that tail end of the text, kind of verse 10, you know, that it was the Lord's will to do this. Um, thinking wider, big picture with the other texts, um, we do on our Good Friday service, I usually do kind of devotions on the seven words of Jesus. And I guess I'd never really stopped. And I mean, I know they're all from the Gospels, but the, the Gospel for this Good Friday is from John. And he has three of Jesus' things, the woman's son, the I thirst, and the it is finished. And what's interesting is in that John reading, the phrase that keeps coming up is when he says, I thirst, this fulfills scripture. Uh, when they divide his garments, this fulfills scripture. And it in that wider thought of there was prophecy, there was fulfillment, this was planned. This was not random. This was not God getting himself out of a pinch. There was a plan. He carried it out. And thank goodness he did, because we have the peace. And just, it, it's good, I just to help that big picture, for me at least. <laughs> I think just what, what you guys have said in the last 10 minutes would be a revelation. I mean, maybe, maybe um, um it's just been my experience. But if you'd ask the average person if they thought that it was the plan from the beginning that when God said, let there be light, this would all unfold. I, I wonder how many people would, would know that. And yet you just brought up verse 10, Joel. It's the Lord's will, his eternal will. Um, and, and then just highlighting what professor said that it's all just part of God making his love more clearly known, this, this plan. I, th- I think that this would be... Uh, um, Maybe again, <laughs> I could be wrong, but I think it'd be uh, eye-opening to people to hear that. Oh, I bet you're right. Other thoughts, John. In your uh, um, your email, you had mentioned um, some benefits other than forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Uh, but what came to my mind is. Uh, and it talks about uh, Jesus bearing our sicknesses. You, you of course, know that um, Matthew, interestingly, sees this fulfilled when he heals people. Uh, this is already Matthew 8, 17. And I think we, we customarily, for that reason, Matthew, you know, he, he uh, does his own thing rather than you know, quoting Septuagint, which is kind of interesting. But Jesus sees that, or uh, excuse me, Matthew sees this as referring to Jesus' miracles of healing, uh, which kind of prompts the question, you know, beloved of uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics, of course, um, is healing part of the atonement? To which I, I think, I don't know, if, uh, I think I would respond, yeah, absolutely. I, um, one of the things that Jesus does is he inaugurates the kingdom of God, which is a new kingdom where nobody is going to be sick anymore. And he gives us a token of this during his earthly ministry by healing people. Um, I, we're still all going to get sick and die eventually, but we look forward to a new kingdom inaugurated by this servant where sickness, illness, disease, death, all that's going to be just a dim, dim memory. And, and Matthew sees it 
already uh, here and already as a fulfillment of what, uh, what Isaiah has to say. I'm, I'm smiling. I just have a quick, have to interject a story. Uh, there's a place in Orlando called the Holy Land Experience, and they do a passion play. And we took the youth from our district there. And when they were talking about Jesus, the Messiah, and they're getting into that, what professor was just talking about, uh, that's when they took it from being a play into an actual faith healing experience and, and said, well, if you have ailments, the actor Jesus would come heal us. And we had to do a little damage control and remind people that, yes, he could do that, but the greatest healing is our sins forgiven. And we look forward <laughs> to the eternal healing with no more ailments. So uh, just an interesting thing that happened to us. <laughs> so you're suggesting we don't do that at our Good Friday service, I'm assuming. Uh, Is that correct? Yeah, I, I wouldn't. Um, it was it was very awkward uh, just because all of our kids are looking at us like, "Is this happening?" And we just kind of sat there and kind of "We'll talk later" type uh, gestures to them. <laughs> Good learning experience, though. <laughs> Any other thoughts? I was going to say another another gospel benefit um, that I think is is helpful to bring out with Good Friday in general, and it's certainly reinforced with this text. You know, as much as we rightly put a, a ton of emphasis on this triumphant declaration from the cross that Jesus says it is finished, um, there's there's a final vindication that that we do wait for. Um, on Easter Sunday. And so the idea that even for the servant of the Lord, even for the son of God, um, the final word about him, his final vindication uh, came from outside of himself. It came from his father as, you know, the, the song wraps up. And just as we think about our, our own lives, um, you know, we were kind of constantly sort of tug back and forth between this idea that, you know, it's it's what other people think and say about us that really determines who we are and what we're worth. Or, or you know, on the other hand, don't don't listen to what the haters say and don't don't listen to what other people say, but it's what you think about yourself that really matters most. And as Christians, we have something that's just far better than either one of those two false alternatives that our our justification, our vindication comes from the Father. And so even as we see Jesus entrust that vindication to his father on Good Friday, um, we know that we enjoy the the same uh, blessings because we're united through faith in him. Do you guys have any thoughts on um, on verse seven? I know we were talking about probably zeroing in on some verses, but that, that verse has always just struck me, just the repetition, both of words then, of, but also just thoughts. Did not open his mouth is silent, did not open his mouth. I just always have the, the hymn rolling in the back of my mind, the lamb goes uncomplaining forth. Um, just that there's no complaint here on his part. I mean, so you, not, not just, I, I'm thinking more to the father of, come on, why would you have me do this? I'm the only perfect one. But he goes forth because there was the plan. Um, that was just my initial thought. But. Apologize for taking us kind of far afield here, but uh, there are a lot of hints in this text, according to one uh, one exegete. And I, I think he's onto something. Little hints that that this servant is speaking as sort of a wisdom figure, yeah, as kind of a you know, the kind of 
figure that you would encounter in a one of the paradigmatic wisdom books of the Old Testament, like Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, something like that. And Yaskiel, he will uh, act wisely slash have success, kind of sets you up for that in the beginning. Well, then this, this exegete also points out that to maintain your, your cool, to stay calm and to not retaliate, that would have been consistent with what in the ancient Near East, what a, what a wise person does, as opposed to an unwise person. In Egypt, they believe it or not, in Egypt, they actually talk about the cool man. who, uh, And this is characteristic of a cool man. And of course, this is the ultimately wise man uh, who, as he's doing this, yeah, he's, he's going forth uncomplaining. I suppose I could be accused of turning gospel into law if I turned, took this opportunity to talk about how hard it is for us to not retaliate, to not open our mouth uh, when we're enduring treatment that we really don't think we deserve. And yet here, look at Jesus. I think another interesting angle that that i've chewed on with that section of the song um you know another view again as as everyone almost in in the world acknowledges that this is an event that actually happened um but then struggles to to make some sort of sense of it i think um an idea that has gotten some legs in recent years um especially in a world where now you know everything that happens is viewed through the the lens of power dynamics and who is in power, who is oppressing, who is being oppressed, that Jesus' death on the cross is kind of the ultimate example of, look at how the, the wicked, awful, evil power structures are are carrying out this grave injustice against someone who is weak and powerless, and how it's almost a, a demonstration on Jesus' part about that, about how you know power itself is, is wicked and certainly uh, those who would use it unjustly. You compare that with these verses and say, you know, if, if Jesus is trying to send him some sort of message with his death about power and oppression, boy, he did a terrible job of that because he didn't say a whole lot as all of this was going on. You know, he, he was he was silent. He didn't protest what was what was going on. And you think about, you know, everything we've gone through in the last year about how, you know, this is how we respond. We protest, we stand up and we shout. And in fact, silence is is the only thing that's not acceptable. Uh, to let injustice just go on without speaking up against it. And yet we look at the servant and, and he did just the opposite. So there's there's more to Good Friday than, um, you know, those with, with power doing something uh, against someone who is weak. It's it's that vicarious atonement that comes in the previous section that our, our thoughts are focused on. It's great thoughts. Anything else? Final thoughts or encouragements you want to give to guys? Hey, I, I know this is the stuff of our life. As you, you set this up initially, John, I, who, who doesn't know that Jesus died for our sins is, you know, Christianity in a nutshell. But I... I wonder if it's appropriate for me to challenge preachers to find a way to bring that home in a in a fresh and interesting way so that it doesn't become the cliche that I'm, unfortunately I, I think it has. What does that really mean for somebody to 
to stand in your shoes, push you out of the way and, and take the punishment that you really have coming. I mean, there are, there are all kinds of illustrations probably that come up to mind that would be effective in doing that for a modern day audience. And I wouldn't be averse to, you know, storying that a little bit um, because that, that really is what the poet is doing here, isn't it? It, it really is what Isaiah is doing. And, and this kind of takes me back to our initial thoughts about do you, do you excise a portion of this text and preach only on that, or do you preach on the whole? And I, I don't want to weigh in on which is preferable, I guess, in, in my opinion, but if, if you do excise the text, uh, it, my thought would be make sure you realize the, the movement that's going on from beginning to end, because as you said earlier, it does work. It is one, it is one poem. Uh, but zeroing in on some particular point like that of verses four, five, and six, and finding a way to story that in a way that people will say, oh, I, you know, I never really knew that that's what vicarious atonement meant. Not that you have to inflect the theological terms on them. Uh, we've got creative minds listening to us right now. I know we do. And <laughs> I'd love to hear what they're going to do with that. I mean, this is just to... to echo what what i what you're saying um the verses at the end of 52 um they were what they were told they will not see what they have not heard they will they will understand and then 53 one through three just this shock factor that we were talking about before can you can you recreate even just a little bit of that for today's listeners to um yeah help them feel just a little bit shocked at at what happened on this day Anything else? Seeing nothing, I'll thank you, gentlemen, for your time. And uh, to our listeners, you're in all our prayers uh, as you bring this text to God's people in just a few days. Lord's blessings.